You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Presbyterian, a CREC church in Cochrane, Alberta. We invite you to visit our website at covenantpresbyterian.ca or contact us via email at covenantcochrane at gmail.com. We pray that you are blessed by the message. Our text this afternoon is Nehemiah chapter 2. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Would you turn your mic on? It is on. Hear now the word of God. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, he took up the wine and gave it. I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I, very, I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when this city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So please the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the provinces of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And the letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sembalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate, to the dragon spring and the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, and the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them the hand of my God had been upon me for good, and also of the words of the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sembalat the, the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant and Geshem the Arab, heard of it, they jeered us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will rise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of our God. Thanks be to God. Would you please bow your heads as we pray. Our good and gracious God, we thank you for your word, that we have the privilege of opening it before us. We ask that you'd help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear what you're telling us in your word this afternoon. We know that these are gifts that only you can give. And so we ask that you pour out these good gifts upon us. May we all be remade by our encountering with you through your word this afternoon, from the oldest to the youngest. 
Lord, give me the words to speak and to preach this text as it ought to be preached. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you please be seated. So since we had some people that were missing the last time we started the book of Nehemiah, I just would like to recap at the very start why we're choosing to go through the book of Nehemiah. Well, in our current time, it can be all too easy to become discouraged looking around us at the state of our society. After all, these days pastors can face jail time for Christian moral ethics, let alone that being a Christian is no longer seen as a positive in our society. But rather now it's something that is looked down upon, or at the very best, just looked at with that sideways glance of being unsure if this is someone who they want to associate with. Now, in this whirlwind of antagonism, it can become all too easy to feel like we just want to blend in to get along, like we just want to go with the flow. But that's exactly what the book of Nehemiah is saying no to. That's exactly what he's reacting against. In Nehemiah's day, just like in ours, we can feel the pressure to just go along with the hashtag current thing. It's all too easy for us to feel like we're just in a slowly deflating balloon trying to preserve our own little pockets. But if 1 Corinthians 15, 25 and 26 is true, and it is, then he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And since all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to Christ, and we are therefore to go and to make disciples of all nations, and then what bearing does this have upon how we are to live within our own culture? Now the reason we're going through the book of Nehemiah is because this is the story about God's people in God's place pursuing God's glory in the context of his covenant promises. Let me just say that again. The book of Nehemiah is a story about God's people in God's place pursuing God's glory so that he would be glorified and that his people would be built up. So this isn't just some dry story about how God worked for some people way back then. This is the story also for us as the church as we seek to live faithfully within our own culture as well. We even have the blessing of the New Testament, something that wasn't available to the covenant people back then. Now, one thing that we'll see is that some of the same challenges that plague them are the same challenges that we have to wrestle with day to day. Troubles such as being in a culture that's antagonistic towards God. Being under a government that, in, that seeks to interfere in the operations of the church. Interfere in the proper worship of God. Some rather terrible economic prospects. An education system that is geared towards paganism and trying to draw away the covenant children from covenant faithfulness. While not everything transfers over in a one-to-one ratio, there's much wisdom and practical insight for how we are to seek to build in our dang, decaying culture. Just like how from the book of Daniel we saw how we are to faithfully resist in the midst of a hostile place, even if we weren't in Babylon like Daniel was. Similar from Nehemiah, we'll see what it looks like to be faithfully building. That's why we're going through Nehemiah. We don't just want to be that slowly deflating balloon. Rather, we want to hope to leave a godly foundation for our children and our children's children to build upon. Much like what Chris mentioned from our meditations afternoon. So, last time we went through Nehemiah chapter 1. What is it that we saw there? We saw that where we must start... That number one foundation piece to any rebuilding project must be prayer and repentance. First of all, we can't hope to have God bless some of our ventures if we're at odds with God. First thing we must do, we must submit ourselves to God. We must repent of our sins. Then we pray that the Lord would would be at, at work within us. Last time we went through some of the covenant promises, we saw that God hasn't abandoned this world. He hasn't just set it spinning in motion and then said, well, good luck, everybody. He hasn't just sent his son to redeem us from our sins and then just simply to leave us off to piously live. Rather, last time we looked at some of the covenant promises. We saw, for example, from Ezekiel 40 to 48, how that great eschatological temple, how it starts with a trickle and then the water flows deeper and deeper covering the whole face of the earth. 
Similarly, it is with the knowledge of the Lord, how it will cover the face of the earth. We saw from Daniel chapter 2, how there's this great statue of the empires of the world. And then a stone comes and smashes this massive idol. And that stone then grows into a mountain that will encompass the whole earth. And that is the kingdom of God. So God's kingdom isn't something that's simply meant for our own piety. Rather, something that grows and interacts with the real world, with the world as it is. We can look at our Lord's words when he talked about the parable of the mustard seed. How the tiniest seed that they knew in Jesus' day, the tiniest seed that they would recognize, how it goes into the ground and how the kingdom starts like this tiny seed. It will grow and grow until it becomes this massive tree from which all the birds of the heaven, that's all the different peoples of the world, how they will come to it. Or how the gospel, how the kingdom of God, it's like leaven that works its way through the whole lump. Meaning that there isn't just, the kingdom doesn't just have an influence in one area of life. It doesn't just have an influence in one corner or pocket of the world. Rather, how the kingdom of God will continue to grow and grow and grow. Until, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to put under Christ's feet is death. So with that, we move forward. We move forward into Nehemiah chapter 2. Now this picks up right away from where Nehemiah chapter 1 left off. And today what we're going to see is that we're going to go from repentance and prayer to prayer and preparation. With the big idea of our passage this morning being that our God calls us to pray and to plan for the growth of his kingdom. So with that, let's dive back into our text. So in verses 1 to 8, we see that this is a very dramatic account. This is the recounting of um, one, potentially a couple of conversations that Nehemiah as the cupbearer had with the king. So our text picks up in the month of Nisan. As we saw before, it was in the month of Chislaev that Nehemiah, first of all, dedicates himself to prayer. That Nehemiah is first grieved by what is going on, and that Nehemiah prays day and night, prays continually for the Lord to be at work. Now, if we remember, the month of Chislev runs from mid-November to mid-December. The month of Nisan runs from mid-March to mid-April. So this is a time span of three to five months in which Nehemiah has dedicated himself to prayer. First of all, how consistent are we in prayer? How many of us would be able to say we have prayed for the same thing for the time span of three to five months? Now, when it mentions uh, that when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. As chapter 1 ended, it mentioned that Nehemiah was the cupbearer. Now, the cupbearer was a highly important position because, first of all, this was the person who made sure that neither the king nor any other foreign dignitaries or members of the king's household will be poisoned by uh, the wine that he drank or the food that he ate. So not only was this a highly important position to the king, due to its high proximity, we have learned from other ancient sources that a cupbearer was actually someone who had a high position of authority. This wasn't just somebody who, you know, was this slave that we just hoped didn't die, kind of like what the canary used to be in the coal mine. Rather, this was somebody who had the king's ear. This was somebody who the king trusted very personally and very deeply. This is someone who the king could actually lean on and would ask for advice. From other ancient sources, we've learned that there were actually um, fathers who would try to get their kings, that would try to get the, uh, the king to take their own sons on as the cupbearer. This was a position that was highly prized. So one of the things that I think for us to think about as Christians living today in our current society uh, is how are we doing as far as being an influence within those who are in positions of power? Do we as Christians think of ourselves as that we should be politically involved? After all, Nehemiah wasn't just a slave who was sent to, to drink some wine and hopefully not die. Rather, Nehemiah was a man who had great authority. As Christians... In our day and age, there's many who would say that Christians ought not to be involved in politics. There's many who would say that Christians ought to just shrink away from the public realm, that our Christianity ought not to proceed from beyond our own private life. 
that Christianity ought not to have any role within the wider moral structure of our society. I think from the life and the example of Nehemiah, we can say that's demonstrably false. That's obviously not true. Because Nehemiah, in many ways, was one of the chief officials within the Persian Empire. And he's not afraid to use that position that he has for God's purposes. So, Christians, don't be afraid to get involved in politics. It's not a dirty word. Remember that just like Nehemiah, God was his ultimate king. That was the one who he ultimately had to answer for. So if anybody here is interested in running for politics, is interested in potentially running again for politics, for, say, town council, these are things that are open to the Christian. These are not things that are to be considered something to be looked down upon. Don't be afraid of being involved in the political process. Don't be afraid of signing petitions. Don't be afraid of door knocking. As long as we recognize that Christ is our ultimate king, Now, as our text continues, And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Now, for those of you who don't know, in the ancient times, kings didn't want to be reminded of sad things. It was not your role to bring more bad news to the king as the cupbearer. It was your job to be uplifting to the king. You weren't supposed to be somebody who added troubles to the king. You were someone who was supposed to make the king's heart merry. So for Nehemiah to be bold enough to allow sadness in front of the king, to to be bold enough to show sadness in front of the king, that's already a tremendous act of courage and something by which he probably took his life into his own hands. And then he continues. Then I was very much afraid and I said to the king, let the king live forever. Now, Nehemiah's response. He starts off with the traditional court greeting. Let the king live forever. This is just showing good wisdom. But then he answers and argues with the same pattern as we see Queen Esther argued in Esther chapter 7. Not arguing on the basis that some social evil had come towards him or to his people, but rather on the basis of a personal evil committed against someone important to the king. Now, there's an interesting note here when it mentions... The queen was present. This is something that's puzzled commentators. This is one of the things that, if you dive into the commentaries, just about every single commentator has a different explanation or understanding of why this is. Now, for those of you who remember, last time I referenced a book by James Jordan called Daniel Artaxerxes, Darius Artaxerxes and Azuharis in the Bible, written by James Jordan. It's a little book. And in it, he argues that actually... Ezra, Nehemiah, and Queen Esther were all part of the same generation. I think that actually helps to explain this. That Nehemiah here, in arguing to the king, and pleading his case to the king, what he's doing, he's using the same structure and outline as what Queen Esther used. Hence, why it was probably successful. This was a line of argumentation that the, that the king was amenable to. And he ends up saying... Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed. What's Nehemiah's first response? Prayer. Prayer in the midst of the moment. This is a reflex. How many of us would be able to say that we have the same reflexes? That for us, when we are in a moment of great stress and we feel great pressure, that our first response is to pray. I think this isn't something that just comes about due to a harsh circumstance. Rather, this is indicative of a life that is lived in prayer. Nehemiah is a man who has spent his life in prayer. He has learned that in everything that he does, to pray. And therefore, he's able to respond in this way. Now, who here can say that's the same for us? I know for my own self, I would wish that I was there, even though there are times where, in all honesty, that doesn't describe me, as I'm sure it doesn't describe many of you. This is one way, I think, for all of us to work towards and to grow in. Now, when we look at Nehemiah's request, there's some extreme boldness within this. What is he asking for? 
First of all, he's no longer, he's asking to no longer protect the king as one of his trusted subjects and advisors. He's asking for time off from his role. So the king now has to find somebody else that he trusts. We learned from the next few verses that he also asked for a military escort, letters of safe passage, and on top of that, for the king's resources to rebuild the defenses of a foreign city. And on top of that, how it's to live in, not just something they'll scrounge it for themselves, but all this he's asking to come from the king's own stores. Now I'd say there's some boldness to this. Now where does that boldness come from? I think the only logical explanation for this is that this comes from his time in prayer. That his boldness comes because he knows what God has called him to do. His boldness comes from knowing this is the task that God has set before him. And he's trusting that God would be the one who causes this to happen. Now in verse 8, it mentions, And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Now this is a reflection. After all this has taken place, after all this request has happened, he now asks the king, he's now, sorry, the king has granted him his request, and now he reflects upon what has happened. Now, I think the act of reflection, introspection, can be a very valuable thing to reflect upon what has taken place and how God has acted in our lives. Because how often do we take time to reflect likewise? This is what Nehemiah does here. Nehemiah takes the time to glorify God for what he has done in his life. Now, for many of us, we would say that we hold to the reformed distinctives. We would hold to the sovereignty of God. But my challenge to you, is this just a theological construct? Is this a theological club to whack our minions with, be it online or in our own personal lives? Or is this practically a warm blanket of the soul for the tumultuous times we live in? Is the sovereignty of God something that we truly rest in? Or is this just something we assent to? Is it simply something that we believe, or is it something that impacts the rest of our lives? Now, checking in from the meditation two weeks ago, when we had our two-year anniversary, and yes, we did celebrate like Presbyterians, decently and in order without much fanfare. Or perhaps, I just looked at the calendar that day and recognized, oh wait, it's our two-year anniversary. I was surprised as you are. But my challenge to you on that Sunday was have you looked back to see God's working in your own circumstances? Have you looked back and actually written out, here are some of the ways that God has acted in my life? Here's the way that God has acted in the life of our families. And then for those of you who are parents, have you passed that down to your children? Have you told your children, here is the goodness of God in our family's history. Here's how God has acted. Or if you don't have children, have you written that out so you are able to then pass that on to your children? Now, as our text continues, we then see the faithfulness to plan of Nehemiah. So verses 9 to 11. When I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters, now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sembalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite's servant heard this, it displeased them greatly, and someone had come to seek the welfare of Israel. Now, what we see here is Nehemiah has made this vast journey. Nehemiah has safely arrived but as soon as he arrives, opposition begins to mount. Now, much more will be said about this cast of characters, uh, those in opposition to Nehemiah, as we continue on. But for now, we know that Nehemiah has arrived safely and that the opposition is beginning to grow. So, what does Nehemiah do first when he arrives? Does he come in guns blazing? Does he make a great show of his arrival? No. In Luke 14, our Lord tells us that before we start a venture, we need to ask if we're able to see it through to completion. For example, Lord, use the example of a tower. Who starts building a tower without being able to get past the foundations, without being a laughingstock, or going to war without knowing that we have a means of winning? And that's exactly what Nehemiah does here first. He takes the time to properly assess the situation before he even lets the people know his intentions. He doesn't come in and start accusing the people for why wasn't the wall done? 
Why are things in the state that they are? Why is there such a shambles? He doesn't stop by telling them what to do. Rather, he first takes an assessment of the situation. To do this, he takes three days from all appearances that he's laying low to get a handle of what things are like. As Nehemiah tells us, he didn't tell anyone what God had put in his heart to do. And here's the situation. It's bad. This is going to be a monumental task. And there are a few challenges that he has before him. One of which being the wall. Now to start with, the city of Jerusalem at this time was anywhere between two and a half to four kilometers in circumference. Now that's a lot of wall that needs to be rebuilt. To make it even more difficult, the stones that they were using weren't just small bricks like what we would use to build a wall. These were massive stones designed not to be moved once they were in place. These were stones that were meant to be moved once and then never again. After all, these were there for the defense of the city. Complicating matters, Jerusalem was built upon two hills at this time, and the former stones had been tumbled down the hill in order to impede any further building attempts. So not only were they, did they have to rebuild it, everything they had was scattered downhill, most likely over time had become partially buried, and was now going to be a, a huge task in order to move. In order to accomplish this task, he was going to need all the manpower he could find and any available mechanical advantage that they would be able to get. So in his night ride, he sets out to survey the destruction. He starts at the valley gate, which is in the far west of the city. He then moves south along the uh, Dragon Spring to the furthest south gate, the Dung Gate, which, yes, as its name suggests, is where the refuse, excrement, rubble, all the garbage was taken out of the Dung Gate to be dumped in the Valley of Hinnom. From here, Nehemiah continues his journey east to the southeast corner of the, to the Fountain Gate, which is where the Hinnom and the Kidron Valleys meet. This is what is called the King's Pool here, is also known to us as the Pool of Siloam. This should ring a bell for those who remember Pastor Chris when he preached through John 9, when Jesus told a blind man to wash in this pool. The reason for the difference in names is that this was originally called the King's Pool because Hezekiah had a tunnel built from inside the wall to a pool on the outside walls to secure water supply should or when the city would become besieged. Next, Nehemiah says that there was no room for an animal to pass. It's referencing the terraces that were collapsed to make it an impossible barrier. So essentially, there were these terraces on the side of the hill. When they, when they were collapsed, they'd strew these massive boulders and stones all the way down the hill, making it really difficult for any attacking force to make their way up and really difficult to rebuild. Hence why it says that he has to dismount and continue. Now, that's just one of his challenges. The next challenge was to get the people on board because the people were disheartened people. They had no walls to defend them. They lived under the rule of a foreign occupying force. They had no means of defense. They had no, no means to stand up for themselves. And they lived in the, most of the people lived in economic oppression from the rich. And they had known many, many defeats. Now, Nehemiah, first of all, had to find a way to motivate the people who were anything but motivated. Previously, when the people had tried to rebuild the temple in Ezra 4, they were sabotaged and ordered by the king to stop the project 13 years beforehand. So this was the people who had become accustomed to the status quo. This was the people who had been beaten down. This was the people who had no hope. Now what about us? While we can't physically ride around the ruins of our civilization, we can have a quote-unquote midnight inspection, so to speak. Have we done that? Have we taken time to reflect upon the state of the church and the culture? Are we grieved by what ought to grieve us? Are we grieved by the capitulation of much of the church to the state of our culture? Is that something that truly moves us? Is that something we have taken time to reflect and to pray on? Or the decay within our culture all around us? Canadian society once used to honor God, both in public, in their laws, in the way that Canadians did lives. Now we can say that our society is anything but. 
Our society in many ways is opposed to God. Is this something that grieves us? Is this something that we pray for regularly? Now this then brings us to the faithfulness to, uh, to, uh, to stand. He will see, first of all, how he is faithful to stand for the cause of the people of God, but he's also faithful to stand against the opposition. This is a two-handed thing. You have to stand for what you're for, but you also have to stand against what is opposing you. So first, standing for the cause. How will Nehemiah motivate the people? First, he isn't going to play the card as you would expect. He's not going to say that I'm the visiting official from Susa saying that's their mess, but don't worry, I've got this. He's not swooping down as some Superman-type savior. Rather, he's going to start off by identifying with them. The trouble we are in Let us build, that we may no longer suffer derision. The usage of personal pronouns is meant to show that he is with them, no matter how bad the situation may be. How many of us have at some point made a mess of our lives? Say, we have done something, or we've come into a situation that is an absolute disaster. Only to have a parent or someone else step into the mess we're in to help us out. Someone who says, I'm with you in this. We're going to fix this together. And that's what's going on here. That's what Nehemiah is saying. He's saying, it's a disaster, but I'm with you. You're not alone in this. Now, how is that Nehemiah is going to move on to motivate the people? Nehemiah knows that he can't promise an easy life. He can't even say that everything's going to be all right. He can't say there's going to be no hiccups or bumps down the road. Nehemiah can't promise any of the externals or the physical stuff, but rather he appeals to their national pride as God's covenant people. That as God's covenant people, let us rebuild what God has given us because that is what he expects of us and that is what honor demands of us. Now, in our highly indulgent age, this is something that sounds very foreign to us. This is something that Frankly, I don't think I've heard a politician say within my own lifetime, hey, here's something to do. It is bigger than you. I can't promise that things will get better, but it is the right thing to do. As I said, it's not something common to us, but it is something that we do see throughout history. And I think one of the best examples comes from Sir Winston Churchill, probably one of the greatest orators and motivators in that sense in all of history. Churchill also didn't make a promise that everything externally would go well for the people of England. He only promised that it was doing the right thing. It was what honor demanded of them. For example, Churchill said, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. I'm not going to do a Churchill impression. I butcher it. But what is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. But without victory, there is no survival. We shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight in the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island. Whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, the island, this island, or a large part of it, were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to rescue and liberate the liberation of the old. Like I said, Churchill offered nothing externally, saying, I promise it will all be well. He's saying, but this is the right thing to do. Just like Nehemiah never promised ease, but he made an appeal to the nobility that they will no longer be in disgrace. That's the promise of Nehemiah. And in many ways, that's the same promise before us. We are called to build, even if we don't know how it will turn out. 
We are called to be faithful in our time and to trust God to be faithful with what he has said, even if we don't see how God is working in every single moment. We can trust that he is. For historical example, in the 1700s, up to 25% of the women living in London worked as prostitutes, and children were seen as cheap and expendable labor in the Industrial Revolution. This was a cruel time. It was a harsh time. It was a time that reflected more of ancient pagan Rome than of Christ's kingdom. But then what? God used some men who were unashamed of the gospel and didn't mind being looked down on from the rest of society, didn't mind being looked down on by those in positions of power to change the course of history. I'm not talking about a city or a nation, but of the entire world. Men like John Wesley and George Whitfield. These were individuals who preached the gospel. They're unashamed of what it said. They're unashamed of the Lord. And then, as individuals were transformed by the gospel, so were their consciences. First of individuals, and then of society as a whole. This led to laws being put in place that recognized that all people were worthy of value, dignity, and respect, as everyone was made in the image of God. So children and workers were no longer seen as expendable cogs in the machines. And the British Empire went from being in the slave trade business to seeking to eradicate it around the world. George Whitfield and John Wesley didn't know what would end up happening. Many of those changes, they didn't even see in their own lifetimes. But they were faithful to what God had called them to do in their day. So while we may not know what God has next for us or how God will use us, we can know that our labors are not in vain. For God's word will accomplish what it intends to. Now we may stand, now we must stand for what is right. It also demands that we must stand faithful against opposition. Now this brings us back to Sembalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite and Geshem the Arab. So first of all, who is this pack of scoundrels? Who are these, this cast of characters? First of all, Sembalat is a Babylonian name. Nehemiah's term is Horonite. That is a native of Beth Horon which is about 18 miles northwest of Jerusalem. From ancient sources, we believe that Sambalat was the governor of Samaria. Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, there's a few things of what he could be. He was either the governor of Ammon or that he was the servant of Sambalat. The, the wording in the Hebrew could lead one to go either way. Or that he was from the Tobiads, who were the descendants of Tobiah, who in Ezra chapter 2 was rejected from the Jewish community because he could not prove their father's houses or their descendants or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. So they had been allowed to return, but they had not been allowed to participate in the whole of Jewish life. This led to some strong hostility from the Tobiads towards the Jews in Jerusalem. Now Geshem was a powerful chieftain in northwest Arabia which was still under the rule of the Persians, but he was a very powerful man with much might at his disposal. So all in all, in total, these three represented the rulers to the northwest, northeast, and southeast of Jerusalem. All three of these men had an interest in opposing Jerusalem, in keeping Jerusalem down to keep their own hold on power unopposed. These were men who were able to make Nehemiah's life incredibly difficult So what does Nehemiah do? So, sorry, what do they do? They start by jeering and mocking or making fun of them. The text says that they despised them, meaning they hated Nehemiah and the Jews. Does any of this sound familiar to you? Think of it. How often, how are we represented in the media? How are Christians commonly represented in the media? I personally don't remember the last time I saw a story in which Christians weren't presented as either the bad guys or as very silly, shall we say. We aren't, in which we aren't presented as the baffoons or the morons. Then they ask what they're doing. They resort to the same tactic um, that was used to stop the building of the wall in Ezra chapter 4. 
They asked, where is it? What is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, this was the exact same tactic used in Ezra chapter 4 to stop the building of the wall back then. So this wasn't just an empty threat. This wasn't something that they kind of lobbed out to kind of see what effect it would have. This was a highly potent threat, something that people would have recognized and remembered had derailed their project in the past. So how does Nehemiah respond? Well, first, let's read verse 20. Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, shall arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. First of all, he appeals to God, not the king for his authority. He appeals to God as the one who has the authority and the ability to see their project through. This is also the same way of saying that their problem is with God. Not just any God, but this is a God who they, I'm sure, would have heard from their, from their time at court. This was the God who brought Nebuchadnezzar down low. Had him live like an animal for, for a season and then restored his mind to him. Or under the Persian rulership, how this was the same God who delivered Daniel, the second in command of the kingdom in his day. Not just delivered him, but delivered him from execution in the lion's den. Something that would have been a sure death. That that same God was the one who commissioned them, and that that same God will see them through. To go even further then, he said they have no role in this. That what they're doing is none of their business. That what they should do is simply leave. And therefore, that they don't even deserve a response. The same holds true for us today. Just because someone is slandering us doesn't mean they always deserve a response. Just because someone is saying something untrue or making stuff up or the media ends up insulting us, that doesn't mean that every single person needs a response. Now, next. This is also recognizing who the, these opponents are. It's recognizing God's the one who sent him. God's the one who's commissioned him. God is also the one who will see him through. So therefore, all these other rulers who will rise up and oppose him, they don't stand a chance as long as their God is with them. And the same is true for us today. Even though it might seem like there's a lot of raid against us, be it CBC, be it premiers, be it even our prime minister, our God is for us. Therefore, what our God has called us to, what he has set before us, we will be able to accomplish, no matter what the odds against us might seem. So in conclusion, with all this talk of kings and kingdom, kings and kingdoms, it's important to remember that Jesus is the king, and he is the one who will build his kingdom through his people. Now our problem is that we are sinners in need of grace, for we have all broken God's holy law. And we all need a, need a savior. In order for us to come to Christ the King, we must first be forgiven from our sins and cleansed from our wrongdoing. Now Christ is the good King who came to lay down his life for his people, dying on the cross in our place to pay the penalty for the sins that we committed so that we might be forgiven. That means that all the people that our Lord calls are unworthy and broken. We are all like the broken and burnt stones that Nehemiah that lined the hills in the valley of Nehemiah's day. But that our Lord takes those broken and burnt stones and turns them into living stones. For example, in Ephesians chapter 2 it says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That means that we all were once like those <clears throat> broken stones. We all are sinners in need of God's grace. We, the only standing that we have is that Christ has called us and redeemed us. This means that for Christians today, we never get to throw people away. We're called to herald the gospel to all people, speaking the truth in love, even when that's uncomfortable. Because to not speak the truth is to not be loving. Therefore, lies like transgenderisms, 
this is a common line I've heard in the church responding to the issue of transgenderism, is saying that it's not God's best for your life. It's nothing but an evil and wicked lie as it downplays the active destruction of a life. If you wanted to learn more, there's an excellent book called Irreversible Damage. I'd recommend you read it. Now, this can sound like those things that professional Christians are called to do. But these are the things that the Lord has ahead for all of us. Christ doesn't call us to hunker down until we are whisked away, as if the goal is simply to escape this life. Rather, Christ has redeemed you with a purpose. Christ has something in store for every single one of us. There's no one here who can say, well, I'm simply just plodding along, I'm simply just chugging away. Rather, listen to Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, God has given us his word and his spirit and has equipped each of us individually to do the work that he has laid before each of us. Now, what are some of these things? Since I've just referenced Ephesians twice, might as well stick with it. Ephesians 5 and 6, here's some of the commands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Now, these are just a sampling of some of the commands, but these commands of our Lord aren't simply for our piety, not simply there to make us feel better, rather to help us to show the beauty of the kingdom of God as well. In our age of insanity, normalcy and peace will become some of the greatest apologetic tools that we have to the world around us. As a life, as a lived-out Christian life becomes the most subversive action we can take. This is true not just in our day, but also throughout history. For example, in the time of the New Testament's writing, one of the things that was subversive was the universal image of God inherent to all people. In the days of ancient Rome, if you didn't want a child, say it was the wrong gender, didn't like the way it looked, you could throw it out with the trash. What did Christians do? Christians said, no. Each of these children is made in the image of God and is therefore inherently valuable. So Christians would go around at night picking up the children who were abandoned, raising them as their own. This upended the practice of abandoning children like garbage, and it even ended the ancient practice of abortion that was prevalent in Rome at, during its heyday. Another example is that all believers, that we're all one in Christ, that we're one large family of God versus the Roman hierarchy. Now, if you know anything about Roman society, it was brutal, vicious, and incredibly hierarchical. That meant that if you were somebody who was in a position of power, you could use that power however you wanted to smush down the people beneath you. You could do whatever you wanted to them. For example, there was many practices that slaves simply had, were not able to object to if that was what their master commanded of them. Now, Christians, however, because we recognize that all people come to Christ in the same way, we all have equal footing before the cross, and we all come to the Lord's table together. That in baptism, it doesn't matter who you were before Christ. In baptism, we are now part of one body. These are ways in which a consistent Christian life was lived out, a subversive Christian life for their day, but it changed the world around them. Now, none of this takes place in a moral landscape. And here, I've got a rather long quote. I apologize, it is a long quote. It comes from two commentaries, from James Montgomery Boyce and J.G. McGonville. In the early part of this chapter, after his conversion com conversation with King Artaxerxes, Nehemiah reported, it pleased the king to send me, and the king granted my request. This section ends simply, so they began this good work. Simple, yet significant. There was much to do. There would be problems yet, but the work was underway. Notice the word good. J.G. McGonville, in his study of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, has a wonderful section in which he comments on the use of evil and good. In this chapter, now these are words that to us in our English translations, we kind of look over, but they are significant. We should note the following. When Nehemiah's face is said to be sad in verses 1 to 3, the Hebrew word is actually ra, which means evil. The same word used when Nehemiah directs the people's attention to the trouble of Jerusalem in verse 17. By contrast, when we're told of Nehemiah's request, please the king, 
The word used is tov, which means good. This sentence literally said, it was good to the king. Verse 8 and 18 literally say, the good hand of my God was upon me. Finally, so they began this good work. McGonville writes, underlying the action of this chapter, therefore, is a conflict between good and evil. Everything that serves the interests of the returned exiles, the king's decision, the rebuilding of the walls is good. All that tends towards or is produced by their loss or the broken walls, Nehemiah's grief, the aspirations of Sembal, Tobiah, and Geshem are evil. The clear implication of verse 10 is that the opposition to Judah and of these powerful leaders is, isn't just a normal thing. It's a spiritual thing. This is profoundly true and is no less true for us. If you're trying to serve faithfully, then you are engaged in spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6, 10 to 18. Everything that tends to your victory is good. Everything that tends to your defeat is evil. If you can see that, it will make a great difference in how you fight the battle. In short, to summarize all of that, everything you do is significant. There is nothing that is meaningless in your life, be it lacing up your boots, going to another day of work, changing just one more diaper. I know we have a lot of young moms in here. Going through that next homeschool lesson or just reviewing what you had just taught them five minutes before or just that one more load of laundry that you really don't want to do. Therefore, as we close, remember that we are to live all of that we're to live all of life for all of Christ. That everything we do in this life is significant. There's nothing that we do that is wasted. There's nothing that's tarnished. So with that, if you please bow your heads in prayer with me. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege that we get to have of opening it before us. That we all get to carry it with us wherever we go. Be it in our pocket, be it on our phones. Lord, may we not take this lightly. Lord, may we reflect on this text throughout the week. Lord, may we see, like, ne- like Nehemiah, may we see the world around us as your word declares it to be. May we not be discouraged by this, but may we see, that, see this as something to be done as a part of your kingdom. That nothing we do is insignificant. Nothing we do is wasted. But that all of life is to be lived before your face. All of Christ for all of life. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.